Hey everyone, this is Augustus Cho. Welcome to part two of our previous episode. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. There she was, just a walking down the street singing. Do I Let's talk yes. about uh, Kevin, you yourself, okay? Uh, we've covered enough of the uh, Neverly Brothers. I think people get, get the concept. Um, you are a vocalist. You're also a guitarist, and you also play harmonica. So you play all three instruments as you perform the Neverly Brothers, correct? Right. Now, do you have any musical background in terms of music theory? Because you've studied marketing in college. So what was your music background? Well, my music background is um, not too much of schooled. Um, I, my first time I tried to learn music was when I was a young kid. I was, I was forced by my parents, like a lot of parent kids were, to take piano because that was going to help you be a little more well-rounded. Yeah, you can identify. <laughs> Tortured us, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so I was like 11 years old, and for three years, me along with my sister, one of my sisters, were taught piano lessons, home lessons. And I was too hyper of a kid to sit at a piano that long to rehearse because you have to practice if you want to learn and get better. So for three years, I don't know, I learned whatever I learned was by osmosis, by just sitting there at the piano and going through the lessons and trying to read the, the sheet music. And I didn't get very far. Um, and, and as soon as I was able to quit, I did. When I was stopped, my parents stopped forcing me to uh, learn it. Now I'm 14 years old or whatever I was. And I said, okay, I really don't want to do this anymore. And to sit down for a half hour in the summertime killed me not being outside and running around or whatever. So that was my first, um, my first experience with uh, schooling and, and music. And so I think I soaked up some of the basics, you know, some of the rudimentary uh, music theory um, which would come into play later. And later I would try, maybe before that even, I, I, I tried trumpet like in high school, for, you know, for six, maybe for two months. And then I tried drums for a little bit when I was younger, pre-teenager, didn't stick with it. Um, I tried, even I tried playing guitar lessons when I was around 14 and I didn't really like it. Um, just, didn't, just didn't hit me. I always liked music and stuff but didn't hit me so i go to college and i love music and i have a stereo and i stereo that i bring into my dorm and and on my dorm floor there are three or four guys that are playing guitar and i'm intrigued by this and my older brother was had played drums and he had take, taken drum lessons and he was in a band that was in his late high school years and early college years and then he just kind of gave it up so, and he's four years older than me. So he had a guitar because in the early seventies, everybody brought a, a folk guitar because they wanted to be a folk singer. And that was what was happening. And he bought a chord book. So well, while I'm in my halfway through my freshman year and I'm just really liking these, this guitar thing. 
I borrow my older brother's guitar halfway through freshman year in college. I'm 18 and a half years old. And I borrow his chord book, which is a big, thick book. Uh, to this day, I have it. It's called Mel Bay's Deluxe Encyclopedia. <laughs> All right. Mel Bay's Deluxe Encyclopedia of Guitar Chords. It's a great book. I got the same book. <laughs> All right. Then you know. And it's to this day, it's my Bible on, on guitar chords. But I knew some theory already, so that helped me from those days when I couldn't stomach sitting at the piano, it sunk in somehow, the, the, the basic music theory. So now I'm learning guitar chords, listening to records. And for two years, that's how I taught myself and getting tips from these guitar players. I was self-taught. Within six months of playing, of picking up the guitar, I formed my first band in college. It was like a coffee house band. We'd play the coffee houses in the basement of the dorm. And so... That was my beginning, and I just kept doing it. And after about two years, I kind of hit a wall, uh, and I, was, I, I, I wasn't being able to learn leads and pick up leads, and I really played by ear. So I knew I had an ear, and that's a very important thing in music. It's almost more important than knowing read, be, or being able to read music. I think knowing music theory and having an ear are the two essentials in be, being able to be a good musician, have good sensibilities. and. So I could play by ear. I would listen to records and I would pick up the sounds and the, the guitar chords and sing along or play along. But after two years, I was like having trouble figuring out leads because I didn't know all the scales that well. So I took lessons from a guitar player in town at a local music store. And I went to school at, at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, one of the state colleges. So this guy at a local music shop was kind of like a Chet Atkins guy. He was a real picker and wow. he knew real, real new theory he kind of looked like andy griffith to me almost it was like this guy you don't say he, yeah it was really cool and so i i, I he, he started teaching me to to read the sheet music and learn the scales and i started learning the scales up and down the necks and the different versions of them and i was already learning guitar chords so i wanted to learn to be a versatile guitar player i wanted to be able to play a chord the same chord but in different voicings anywhere up and down the neck because it's about convenience. So if you're way up here on the guitar neck and you want to play and switch, it's easier to switch here to here than going way over here. So you need to learn all the chords of that, say, call it an A major. I want to learn an A major in seven, three or four different positions up and down the neck. And they're all different voicings, different finger positions. Same chord, but has a little different voicing, a little higher end, a little lower end, whatever. So that's what I did. I learned all these different guitar chords. So I knew I a never, lot of chords. I never got that far. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> well, you became an actor. So your forte was your, your strength. Your, your inner strengths came out in a different way. But so that's what I did. And then after two years, I kind of sort of sort of hit a, hit a wall with the guitar lessons. And I didn't I didn't really learn to read as well. Or it got maybe I got bored with it. But it, it just really exponentially helped me to become a well-rounded guitar player. Now I knew scales. Now I knew to go along with the chords. And I knew how to, that helped me figure out leads before uh, or better and, and how, how to improvise and play around a chord uh, and all the notes that fit in that scale. So that was my beginning. I was self-taught. I had about six, uh, two years of you know, training with a, with a guitar teacher. To this day, I can't read music. I mean, I can say, oh, there's a, I can look at a, a clef and say, oh, there's all cows eat grass and every good boy does fine. And the two different acronyms you used 
to where the notes would be on the, the, the sheet music, but I can't sit there and read music. I'm not classically trained like that. I, I'd be a horrible studio musician because they, they throw the music in front of you and you're supposed to go. I'm a guy who plays, I, I feel, I hear, I, but I know the theory. So if I play a chord, I, I, I know what it is. What so is talent? So yeah, you have to have an innate talent. I, I believe you have to have an innate talent, then you have to nurture it like everything else. And so that's my strength. I have a talent that I nurtured it. And that's, that's, that's my modus operandi with everything, singing, playing guitar. Because I've got to take a, a Jerry Lee Lewis part on the piano and interpret it to get the guitar. So I hear wow. that sound. And now I got to find how it, how it might work with the guitar to, to create that sort of sensation or that, that nuance without being exact. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's quite a feat, actually, you know, especially with individuals never really formally trained to be able to do these things. That's uh, kudos to you, man. Yeah, it's, it's interpretation of the music. Yeah. Glenn Campbell never had a formal lesson. He just picked it up and his, you know, his family just played music and he just taught himself like you. And to me, who was, Glenn who was this? Glenn Campbell. Oh, oh Glenn yeah. Campbell never had a music lesson. He doesn't know how to read music at all. Yeah. He's kind of like you. He just kind of taught himself. And by ear, he could hear it. He could play it. Well, you know, Paul McCartney, too. He, he doesn't really read. I mean, he's learned more over the years. But he wasn't a music learner. He, he came from a musical family. His dad was into, like, jazz and old-time ragtime music. And they'd sing around, the, sit around the piano. And so he was influenced by his father. But he had that innate talent also so when the Beatles were writing music they weren't writing it literally they were doing it by ear he and John Lennon they weren't they were not readers of music they weren't reading sheet music or they couldn't really log their music and write it into sheet music they had other people do that for them so the same thing they had an ear but they had they had a very good grasp of music theory right so they they took that theory and they would bend the rules and they would change the, they would take a, a chord that would say a major chord and they would go, hey, let's make it a minor. Let's break the rule. And just, <laughs> and next thing you know, they came up with so many creative different ways of changing these six or seven chords. Because rock and roll is like literally six or seven, six chords, really. It's six chords. Now you take those six. <laughs> and most of it's three or four. Yeah. I understand but what you're saying. You know, so you take those three chords or four chords and you, you rearrange them or you sing a different melody over them or you change, you modify the chord in a little way. And it's now it sounds different. Like, oh, that's kind of neat. So, you know, they, they, that's they're, that's even a better example. The Beatles, who were songwriters and bit popular, they didn't, you know, I, I don't I don't say don't like to the young students today or young people. I don't say don't learn how to read. Don't learn. If you could do everything, that's ideal. Right. You could right. learn. But the two most important things are to develop your ear and also uh, to be able to know music theory. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a lot of respect for people that are self-taught, not only in music, but in life in general, but also in music. They, they're just, to me, amazing. I'm not quite, a, I never achieved a level that you achieved, but I do enjoy music and I played piano for three years, 10 years old to 13 year old. And I taught myself guitar in high school, you know, so I, I can get around it, but I never had that formal training. And I think you certainly, you do need formal training to break through that wall. And I never had that opportunity. So you know, I kind of got stuck and then I kind of played a little bit in church in, uh, after college, but at this point in my life, I'm too old to play. So I just let everybody else play. 
yeah, well, you have, you have to have a real passion, you know, like acting. I, I miss that boat. <laughs> whatever your whatever your field is, you got to have a passion for it. Because I was sitting there playing guitar in my dorm room. I was playing guitar at 18, 19, three hours a day. Three hours would go by and, and it was just like nothing. I loved it so much. I just, okay. so you have to really have a passion for it to if develop you, it. If you went to college in 76, were you born in like, like 1958? 58, yeah. Okay, we're same age. 1958. Yeah, same age, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, you look good. Oh, you look good. I think you look better than me, as a matter of fact. But listen, man, you look pretty good. You don't look 63, <laughs> let me tell you. But don't tell anybody, my secret is fried rice. Tri- fried rice? <laughs> don't tell anybody that. But anyway, uh, I remember in the <laughs> 70s, like when you said people came with a guitar and tried try to be a folk singer of the early 70s. Uh, so I, I, I remember that. And at that time, marketing was a popular major back in the uh, mid-70s in college. Yeah, it was. I, I, my father was an entrepreneurial person all of his life. And so he kind of influenced me. But I, was a, I had a creative side to me. And so I wasn't really sure what to get into. I kind of started out as an undecided business major for my first two years, taking prerequisites to fulfill any, any business major. And then when I when I started my junior year, I had to declare a major and I thought maybe marketing sounds more interesting or more creative with involving advertising and such. So I did that. It could have been a a business, business administration, accounting, which was very dry to me. I hated accounting, although I'm good at math, Um, finance, you know, I just thought, Hey, maybe this would be the best thing for me, you know, other than business management, whatever. So I did that. And, Oddly enough, as, as I progressed in my, my school and I started becoming more interested in music, my grades started getting worse and I, getting more, and I was getting more interested in music than I was in uh, business. But, but I got my degree and, and, I did, and I did well and I studied hard. <laughs> I, I heard that. Ditto. <laughs> and, and I was almost going to go for my, my MBA, Master's of Business Administration, because that was very big in 1980 when I graduated. Yeah. The MBA was like, stay in college and go for two more years and get your MBA. Well, I was so sick of college and studies and everything else. I was like, no way. I just was done. I thought, okay, if I'm really inspired, I'll come back. But I wasn't, and I never went back to school, and I never got my MBA. But I did my own thing anyway. Made Not my a problem. Own Life went on from there. And we will be right back after this important message. Hi, my beautiful people. I just wanted to let you know about a book that's helped me save a lot of money. The book is called How to Buy in Today's Digital World, Tips for Those Who Want to Save a Buck. This book provides step-by-step tips on how to save money on your online purchases. It also instructs you on making smart financial decisions when buying groceries, booking flights and hotels, plus lots more. I hope you get a chance to get your copy. I think you'll love it. And I know you'll save some money. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. All right, 
at some point, you became the owner and partner of Red Tower Records, which is a Red Tower Records tapes and video. Tell us about that. Well, that was um, a record store that my brother, Kagam, our drummer, who's he's five years younger than me. And uh, I worked a couple of different types of jobs for a while. And at a certain point in 1985, I was uncertain of what I want to do. So I quit my job and I was living at home still. Those are the days when you didn't have to move out into an apartment right away. <laughs> and um, came from a traditional family. My background is Armenian. Giragosian is an Armenian last name with the IAN is indicative of our cult, our name, like Kardashian. Some people know it, some people don't. But so I came from a very traditional home with five siblings. My parents were both Ar Armenian. I grew up with that culture, but I also grew up with the occult, the idea of getting into my own business at some point. My father was a role model and he was entrepreneurial. So he came up with some ideas and I wasn't even sure what to do, but I, I took some time off living at home. I had saved up money and I had low minimum, minimum living expenses living at home. And I went to um, Europe and Armenia, which was part of the Soviet Union at the time for the summer. I was gone for nine and a half weeks. And part of it was with a, a church group travel cultural program for Armenia. The other half was just on my own with a buddy and we backpacked and did the Ural through Europe for five and a half weeks. And when I was in Germany, in Munich, I walked into this big record store and it was huge. And they had listening stations. They must have had 200 listening stations with headphones hanging from the ceiling with the album cover right up next to the headphone. And you would put it on your head and listen to that thing. So when I came back, my father and I would brainstorm periodically. Well, what kind of a business would you want to get into? You better like it because you're going to be doing it a lot long hours so he even mentioned record store at one point but i th didn't think it sounded very glamorous or interesting so this That's store scary. made me think hey that was pretty cool so my idea was then to open up a record store and my brother was just graduating from uh, college at the university of illinois with his speech communications major uh, <laughs> liberal arts i know where that's going <laughs> and i said to him hey when you graduate you want to get into business and he said yeah so that was the that we started researching we actually went we, we talked to record distributors and we got hooked up with a record store chain in uh, the milwaukee wisconsin area and got to know the owner and he let us spend a weekend in his store taking notes and we learned how they did everything and took measurements and we came back and we searched out a place and we found a place. Our father was in a position to help us get started. So he ended up buying a building, a freestanding building on the edge of a regional mall. He became our landlord. We put our, he loaned us money. We put our money into the conversion of an old pizza restaurant, gutted it, turned it into a record store. And, and it was in the shape of a, uh, of a 1927 firehouse red brick with a big red mansard around it and it had a red tower as the entranceway. So we called it Red Tower Records because the sign, the building was a sign in itself. And we began in the summer of 1986 and it was uh, the right place in the right time. It, it was a, it was an independent record store, yeah. large, 
And so we became the cool independent record store that competed with the mall record stores that were high priced, limited selection. And we had everything, you name it, from lava lamps and incense to T-shirts and imports, <laughs> you know, and special orders and service was our, our specialty. So we had we were a very high volume record store and a freestanding one. And we were 3,100 square feet, which was very large at that time for an independent store. And we sold everything. So that's how we got into it. And that was a love of music and love and, and employing my business and my education background, let's say. Absolutely. Um, but we became partners and we had a successful run. And uh, that ran its course, like every industry, the big fish comes and eats the little fish. It happened in, you know, the uh, home improvement when there was places like Builder Square that got eaten up by Home Depot and bigger places. Um, and in the music business, it became Best Buy and Circuit City, those two big giant chains that were appliance stores, of course, that started selling CDs as a lost leader. And they were selling CDs, their top 40 CDs, for less than we could buy them for. And we found soon found out that our cool record store depended more on those high volume top 40s sellers than the independent one, two buy offs or deep catalog things. So our business dropped off significantly after about three and a half years of them being in the market. We closed after 10 years. We came out good. We closed at the right time before we lost money and just closed the doors, sold the, off the inventory and the fixtures. And that was the end of it. But that was our foray into record retail. And it was a seven day a week operation and a lot of time. But during that period, it got me back into playing music again. So it was another influence. I was not in a band. I had been in bands in college and afterwards. And then for a few years, I, I was not playing. I was a closet guitar player playing at home, you know, to records. But the music store got me back into being exposed to all kinds of music. And that was the early, it was the mid eighties. And, and I was all of a sudden exposed to this like new pop alternative, you know, metal, you know, it was, at one time, it was the pop charts were like all over the board. You had Garth Brooks, you had Poison and Motley Crue, hair band, metal bands, and you had, you know, other ones that were a little more easy listening. And so, and then alternative music. And we lived, we were part of the, you know, Nirvana explosion of grunge rock and alternative and, and then other power pop things. So it was really cool. It was a very interesting time musically. And it really uh, brought me, exposed me to new things because we were getting as a record store and as a high volume store, we're getting weekly dozens of promotional copies to play in the store to promote the records. And so we were hearing all this stuff and playing it in the store. And after a couple of years of being open, we had enough time where we had employees that, that could be part-time managers and I could start doing music again. So I started a band and then that got me back into playing music. And then that eventually led to the, uh, a band that went for a long time but died off and then the, the Neverly Brothers came after that. Yeah, you caught that record industry at the tail end and just uh, sold right, right at the perfect time. Well, we were, you know, we were we were part of the fallout, the independent record store of the, the bigger box stores that were selling it, but it was even before MP3s and uh, you know, everything now. Nowadays, most young people don't even buy physical a physical thing. They buy, they hear mp3s or you know they buy a file they you know spotify whatever all these different services where back in the day like you and i grew up you bought a record 
Oh yeah. You bought an album. Oh yeah. <laughs> and yeah. maybe it had a maybe it was a big gatefold sleeve album and yeah. Sometimes, sometimes those, it had three folds, right? With long Yeah. <laughs> so it was a big it was a big piece of artwork, but you know, we lived through a, a booming time in the record industry when CDs in 1986 were just starting to explode and people were converting entire collections to from album vinyl to CD. So we had a great store. We had a great deep selection and we carried a lot of the older stuff, like say all the Led Zeppelin albums or something. So somebody would come in and buy their entire catalog. They were real fanatics. And so it was a great time to have a good store. And we, and our, and we really covered the market. We were kind of cornering the market in our, in our area, say in a 10 mile, 15 mile radius, we were the place to go to get it. And, and if we couldn't, if we didn't have it, we could get it, we could order it for you. So it was really cool. We were there at the right place. It was timing again, the right place, the right time. And we were just, it was an exciting time to be successful, you know, in doing a business on your own. And it ran its course. And then in hindsight, I look back and go, yeah, it was the right thing to do because we never would have recovered. Yep. with all the new things in music that that have come about since the technology you know nowadays it's kind of going backwards to like vinyl so if you have a small little record store a boutique store with lower rent and overhead you can do okay if you're in the right area where people are buying it the vinyl you, you think vinyl's gonna slowly come back or you think it's just it's, a fad i think it's i think it's a novelty and it's a niche kind of a thing right now but I don't believe that it's going to be the mainstream form of medium for music anymore uh, ever again. It'll be people, young people are buying it and college campuses. It's getting more popular, but I think it's more of a novelty than anything else. And those are, I, if you look behind me, I those see are I was, records. <laughs> That's my record collection. Yeah. I was going to say next, all those LPs behind you. Cause I see a whole, yeah, there's, whole, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, look at that. oh my goodness. Those are three rows of, of records. Uh, you should put over on eBay 500, money. Over 500 LPs, vinyl records that were collection from my early days, my, my older brother and older sister who didn't want their records anymore after a while, and a lot of the copies we got when we had our record store. So, you know, I listen to those a lot now. I get into a, a I've gotten into a, a mood, sort of into a, a routine of sitting in my office. Uh, my office is in my home. And so if I'm shooting off emails at night or doing paperwork and I'm not on the phone um, or doing really fun Zoom interviews like this, um, uh, I, uh, I'll put the records on one at a time and they sound great. I bet. They album vinyl still sounds great. There's just a lot of nuance. They don't sound quite as sharp and pristine as a CD, but there's a lot of nuance uh, that, that you don't hear on a CD that you get from a, a vinyl. There's a little bit of that grittiness. There's a little of that organicness, harmonics that you don't quite pick up. So I listen to them all the time. And unless they're popping or scratching or skipping, they sound great. And I have a nice turntable and uh, you know a, a, a decent needle. And uh, so it sounds great. <laughs> I envy you. All right. Speaking of that, you still do any recording in the studio, mixing and, and editing? No, for a while, I, um, I sat in my basement. I set up my own studio in 1996. We closed our record store in 96 in January, and I had a lot of time on my hands. So I, um, I had a band called the Wombats at the time. That was my original project. 
which I started in 88. And I had started recording in different places, a few songs here and there. And, and I had a friend bring some equipment to my house and record stuff. But I decided, my brother and I decided, and he was our drummer of the band, Kegum. He, he, we, we purchased and invested like 10 grand in, in home studio stuff. So home studio equipment all of a sudden got very reasonable. We thought, okay, we'll spend 10 grand in a studio and record an album. Or we'll, buy, we'll spend 10 grand and buy equipment and we can do as many as we want. So we set it up in my basement and brought out the, the board and the, the tape machines. They were digital tape machines. And we started recording with the help of a friend who became, who was an engineer and a bass player. And he kind of taught me the ropes and he was sort of my mentor and I learned. So I began recording and uh, we, we finished the last eight or nine songs of the CD here. And then I started recording other people occasionally in the house. Now I was single at the time, so I could run cables up my from my basement up into the <laughs> family room you know put guitars amps in closets to isolate them you know the operative word is when you were single and i was single yes i <laughs> and i had my house to do with what i wanted to and i was living in a house to stay my dwelling and i i didn't have anybody to interfere with or so, answer to <laughs> and so that i did for a while and then i ended up getting remarried or not remarried, I got married for the first time ever in, in 2010 at, at the age of 51 okay. and a half. You held out, and huh? It wasn't by design. That's just the way my <laughs> life, that was the way my life played out. I had role models as parents that I thought, you know, yeah, I want to be married. I want to have kids, all that good stuff, traditional thinking. It never worked out for whatever one reason or another. Who knows? Um, but it happened, it and it worked out, and I got married, and then I dismantled my studio. <laughs> well, I was kind of done recording anyway, and it was taking up a lot of room, and so it was kind of like, okay, I hadn't really done any recordings, and I, I started messing with recordings with the Neverly Brothers because I started the Neverly Brothers in 2003. Now it's 2010. I started doing some things, but it never really did finish anything. It's 2021. So, what's that? You said 2010. It's 2021. <laughs> oh, yeah. 2010, I got married. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's when I dismantled my studio because I wasn't really using it. And I uh, I decided to... It's all in my closet now. Okay. My studio. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. So, but we ended up recording... With the Neverly Brothers, we ended up recording uh, at took a long time, but we ended up doing a recording in 2015. Uh, or we released it, I should say, in 2015 at a friend's studio. And it, it worked out really well. We put out two CDs and we uh, we were actually in the process of reordering them because we were, we've done a few different uh, issues of them. We, we've you order like a thousand or so at a time of each. And we have two volumes. They're called... Um, a Magical History Tour, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And they represent our show. The first half of each CD is like the show. We do the 50s Rock and Roll Pioneers. The second half of each CD is the British Invasion music of 1964. So we did these two, and it's like 15 songs in each set. And inside the booklet of both, there's liner notes that give history like the show. So it's it's very, nice. very much like the show. 
nice. uh, and, and they're called a magical history tour. Um, and there's fun little things inside artwork that that relate to the whole thing. Um, but we sell those uh, at our shows and we recorded those. And so I'm in the process of we're out of stock now. Uh, and since we were out of work for 16 months, I wasn't going to reorder them. Uh, but now I have to get back and just start doing that again to have those available for people. Most of them are sold at shows, but they, people can order them by mail. Yeah, they hold on to that. I want to give you a chance to give us your contact information so we can put it out there for you. Okay. Sure. So hold on to that. And we will be right back after this important message. Music background and performance background, and so you got a good ear for uh, music. What is your thought on the present state of music? Is it music? Of uh, the present state of music, the music industry? Yeah, contemporary music from your observation. Well, I think there's still good artists out there. I'm just not into that many of them um, personally. I like good melody and good songs and good chord structures, and but it's it's Rock and roll is kind of a small portion of it right now. You know, if I think, you know, rap, R&B, um, which R&B sounded different in the 60s, you know, with the soul singers and Motown. R&B oh, yeah. is different now. R&B how, is how, how different? How is it different? Well, I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's a little bit more polished sounding. I think, um, I guess it's just evolved to modern modern sounds um back then the song there's it was it comes down to songwriting i think it comes down to songwriting and song craft and and arrangements and back then the arrangements were so perfect i don't know they were minimal they were each the sonic space was filled with just the right instruments it wasn't showing on at once uh, the lyrics were all memorable that's why they were such songs. You can still sing along those songs today. There's choruses, there's verses. They rhymed some of the songs today. There's just going on and on. There's not a re repetitive part or a repeat portion, but maybe I'm just older and I don't relate to it. You know, I don't so relate I'm to asking, it. I'm trying to figure out whether yeah. I don't relate or whether the music is good. So I, I just, I just don't relate to it as much. I'm, I'm used to that classic songwriting sound. And there are bands that start, that sort of do that. They have a retro, throwback sound whether they're a country band i just don't like the overproduced sounds i like the things that sound organic i want to hear a vocal that doesn't sound like 15 vocals smashed into one you know and, and processed over over processed um i just like to hear that vocal i want and that's what moves me and uh, so that's the style i like and uh so I, I i think the state of music today is different it's it's much harder to be um, different, you gotta, it's much more plug it into this sound. Here's what it sounds like. You gotta sound like this. It's hard to be more experimental. Back then you had songs that were five, six, seven minutes long and instrumental. Some of the bands in the seventies or late sixties, they were like the hippie jazz improvisational bands. 
and and or art rock bands like saw the band yes or genesis it wasn't like radio play stuff it was album rock and i don't think bands have a chance to develop that way the record labels don't allow that anymore they they don't allow the time they want instant money instant profits and if you're not doing it you're going to be bounced off the label so that's what's happened i think with all these people these independent artists that do it on the internet you know on on facebook or spotify or wherever they're get they're, if they have a vehicle vehicle to put their music out there and, and self promote themselves but it's flooded so how do you disseminate how do you decide which one you want to how do you discern which one you want to listen to that's the problem yeah which one's going to go viral it's and it's very segmented it's very segmented so like radio back in the 60s or early 70s it was top 40 and you could hear sinatra and you could hear the beatles and you could hear hendrix and they were all in the top 40 now you have the the r&b the rap the jazz the contemporary the the christian the country the the and then you've got the the digital versions of all of them online you know whatever streaming versions so i think it's really hard to pick a thing and do it you can't just sit there and write a song and then go on the road and tour gotcha gotcha when you're you know, performing as Neville Brothers, do you have a favorite song or segment that you enjoy more than others? Um, I like, well, I, I, I favor the British Invasion. Um, I like both because I can, I can put myself into it and channel that energy and channel that sound. And you're like an, you're like an actor because you're, you're conveying that sound and that music um, to the audience, and, in, and you're an interpreter. But I, because I have had more of an affinity for the British stuff. I think I like the second half. I like doing that better. Although I think sometimes the first half is a little more wild and we're a little more animated at certain times because that music was a little more raw. And then the second half, it was a little different presentation. I think of Jerry Lee Lewis at the piano and shaking his head and it's always going wild. Oh, yeah. A little Richard putting his foot up on the piano. And then you think of the Beatles and they're kind of standing there playing the song in those early days and dressed in suits. So I think I like the second half better. Any particular song, it's just how I feel when I sing it. I try to, if I sing Twist and Shout by the Beatles, I kind of think of John Lennon and what he looked like when he was singing it on the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> and I try to put myself in that mindset. Like, you know, you as an actor, what do they call it? Method acting. When you try to recall an experience uh, to put yourself in that mood you're where you're not acting, you're reacting or something. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm doing a similar thing. And that's one I can relate to because I can, I can visualize the, the, let's say John Lennon at a microphone or Paul McCartney doing something at a microphone and singing a certain song. And I might posture differently and, and then it might channel it differently and it might come out and I might have a different way of, in, of singing it inflections in my voice and such. So I like that, you know, I, and I, so when I sing a song that I feel uh, and Maybe Twist and Shout is one because it really comes from the gut. That's a fu that's fun. I also love the band The Kinks, one of my favorite of all all time British invasion groups. So we'll play the song You Really Got Me and we'll do a little, I'll do a narration about the song and I'll play it. And I really kind of feel that one when I play it because I can identify with that song internally. I love it. Um, even when we do the Ray Charles song, What I Say, I kind of put myself in this sort of our rhythm and blues singer mode and try to bring out my 
the inner soul singer in me or, or whatever you want to call it, you know, and it's fun. Um, it's fun to do. And I, and I just like those sounds. Well, knowing what I know now, I'm going to go back and rewatch it, rewatch the video and uh, analyze what you're doing a little bit better and appreciate it more. Yeah. Well, when right. you talk, you talk about the video, um, that video, that's our main promotional video is about five and a half minutes long. And that's kind of long for promotional reel standards, usually like two or three minutes, maybe. But our show has such nuance to it that I tried to, I tried to capture all the nuance as much as possible without being heavily uh, weighted toward any one thing. So that video is culled from a lot of live performances. It was basically many of our own performances with a video camera set up. And so what you're, and I did, I put it together myself. In fact, that was one of the productive things I did during my quarantined social distancing time uh, in the early days of the pandemic in the spring of 2020 was I went through all this footage I had that we had on in the, in the computer uh, or on DVDs. Uh, and I entered them and loaded them in the computer. And I started pouring through and watching footage and finding different footage to see what would fit. And I'd take snippets here and there. And I, I picked, pieced the whole thing together, visually, musically, added text to accentuate certain aspects of the show and highlight what was going on. And so when you watch it, it's like watching our show in time-lapse photography. And instead of watching an hour and a half or two hours concert, you see it in five and a half minutes and you really get, you get the understanding of what the show is all about. And it was something that was long overdue because I was doing so many things at once and playing and booking and, you know, doing everything I had to, to manage this band and can keep it going and keeping money coming in that I was using random footage for so long. And we've been on television many times. We've been on like, the local news shows, local uh, Fox News, local WGN morning news shows, afternoon news shows as musical guests. So some of the footage we we had from them were like random, random songs, which looked good and sounded good, but it didn't capture the narrations and the nuance of the of the concert. Some of the really unique aspects. So that video is something that people can watch and go, I get it. Yes. Totally. The, one that, the one I'm referring to is over our hour law, the video that I've watched. It's, it's one of your entire concert. So I'm going to watch that again. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's on our, our website, um, which, which is called Welcome to the Show, basically on our homepage. All right. All right. So what is next for Kevin and Nebuli Brothers? Well, next is uh, we're, we're moving now again. We're playing out again. Uh, we've got shows coming up, you know, and this month we're playing, a, a, we're outside of Chicago. We're in a suburb outside of Chicago, about 30 miles Southwest. So, and I grew up by the way, I'm a, I'm a South, I'm a Chicagoan, a native Chicago. I grew up on the South side of Chicago. Um, and we moved to the suburbs when I was a teen, young teenager. Um, and so I still live in this general direction where we moved out to, but, uh, we tour now. So, so we're our shows that what's coming next is we just finished our, our, our fairly busy summer season relatively with this pandemic that we're still dealing with. Um, and we're doing the theater show. So this month we got a show in Indiana and then we've got a show uh, coming up this fall. We're playing in Michigan. We're playing in uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Ohio. So we're hitting the Midwest circuit right now. And I'm in contact with places out East 
in Pennsylvania, uh, as well in Ohio. Um, so it's just what's next is to continue to get our get our get on our you know get on our feet again, get our gain our footing. There you go. Our, show, our shows that were canceled are all coming back. These theater shows. So we've got a lot of bookings right now through next uh, May or April, I think a number of them that were rescheduled. I, everything is to me, everything is called it become a hyphenated word, our COVID rescheduled shows. Uh, and hopefully that word will disappear from our vocabulary after a while, but that's, that's what's happening next. Now we're getting back and playing again and getting out regularly. And we can, we'll continue to expand uh, the venues that we perform in, and, and ge- geographically keep getting farther and farther out Excellent. from where we are. So Kevin was raised in Chicago with, where they don't call a hot dog a hot dog. What do they call hot dogs over there? The hot dogs? Yeah. Well, they, call it something else? Well, they call them hot dogs, like Red Hots. Um, I don't know if they call them wieners. Uh, they, yeah. they call it wieners or something. They don't call it hot dogs, right? They, they call them hot dogs. Yeah, there's the Chicago-style dog. Um, and uh, the Chicago style dog is the one that's got like a skin, more like a, like a, a skin on it, I guess. And then they load it up with everything. It's like a salad on there. Except um, the ketchup. You don't do ketchup, right? Well, they'll put it on there, but yeah, <laughs> if, if you want to be a hot dog snob, you, you can only use, you can only use ketchup and onions and, or not ketchup, uh, mustard, mustard, yeah. mustard <laughs> and onions. <laughs> but, I don't think uh, yeah. offended. Yeah, no, to me, whatever you like. But uh, yeah, there's the Chicago style dog. There uh, you go. And of course, the Chicago style pizza. That's right. That's, this is famous. It's really thick. All right, Kevin, what is the best way for your fans to contact you to get uh, the merchandise and et cetera? Well, we have a, our website is the place to go. Tell we us. have a face. And so the website is the name of the band. It's www.the neverlybrothers.com and it's the word never with an ly brothers plural dot com the neverlybrothers.com that's our website on the website there's many there are many pages and you can find our page where i think on the front page you'll actually see how you can order the the cds if you want to you can also sign up on our mailing list we have an email blast that we send out every week so you can sign yourself up to the blast to get information on us you can order those CDs, but it's only mail order. It's not with a credit card. It's with a, a check. So people mail checks to us and I mail back the CDs to them. Um, and our, we have a Facebook page, which is the Neverly Brothers, you know, Facebook slash the Neverly Brothers. Uh, and so there's information there. So you can post things there. You can communicate with us on the Facebook page by liking us or putting comp- comments. Uh, my email and uh, my office phone is listed on our website. And my email is the name of my company, which is Digging Records, D-I-G-G-I-N-G Records, Digging Records, dot, uh, at, digging records at Comcast.net. So that's the email, Digging Records at Comcast.net. My telephone number on the website, you can find it there, 708-301-0936. And uh, usually I'm the one answering the phone. Uh, so that's if you want to directly contact us for information or upcoming shows or bookings, I do 
I do all the bookings. My old, my younger brother Kegum does the bookings too, but mine is the main number. So any kind of contact with us, information, merchandise, uh, those are the ways to get a hold of us. Uh, the Facebook, but mainly the website for merchandise and for contacting. You you can send an email to me. You can call me. So I'm accessible that way, and and uh, it's very simple. And I I, kinda, I guess I'm old fashioned. I still pick up the phone. Okay. Well, thank you for showing up today and spending time with us, Kevin. Well, thank you for having me, Augustus. It was nice meeting you. Nice talking with you. And uh, good luck with you and your career as well. All right. With that, the Augustus chose Fry It Up podcast. Thanks, Kevin, for opening up your life with us today. And we wish the Neverly Brothers continued happiness, health, and tranquility. This is Augustus Cho over and out.